But please turn with me to Matthew 21, verse 6. And we touched on it and read it as our scripture on this morning. Where it reads, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Which incidentally is the title of our sermon today, just in case you didn't know. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come to into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the multitudes said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, please turn with me to Mark 15 and 11. Where it reads, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him who you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Hosanna in the highest. Now, as we move into Holy Week, the celebration of Palm Sunday and the story surrounding that celebration is something that I remember since I was a little boy. At Old West Angeles, over there on Adams on the hill, I remember seeing the, the palm leaves that they taped to the walls of the sanctuary. That is my first memory of Palm Sunday. I used to love being in service, Palm Sunday service, and watching everyone sing and praise and shout themselves out of their shoes. Of course, at that age, it was always fun to hear all of the music and see all of the jumping and shouting because it meant that I got to jump around too <laughs> in service. But the more I learned about Palm Sunday as I got older, the more I would wonder what it all meant. The significance of palm branches and why everyone threw down their palm branches and their robes so Jesus' coat 
could walk on them. I begin to wonder why Jesus, our Savior, got one reception on Palm Sunday when he rode into Jerusalem, and then he got another far different response just five days later on Good Friday. Hosanna in the highest on Sunday, but crucify him by Friday. That's just five days. What happened? I would ask myself, where were all of those people in the crowd that were screaming Hosanna when the cr crowd screamed crucify him? Did he not have at least one person that would have stood up and said, hey, just a few seconds ago, where were all of the Hosanna people when all of the crucifying people were being so loud? Since we today know who Jesus was, the lamb that was slain, the lion of Judah, in whom rests all power in heaven and earth, who is the word that was with God and is God, whose name is above every name, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, since we, in this time, already know who Jesus is. It isn't difficult to understand why the storm and the wind and the waves obeyed him. Why sickness and paralysis and demons and disease left those who he touched. It isn't hard to understand why the dead would rise up when he would tell them to get up. Since we today know who he really is, it isn't difficult to understand ultimately why the crowd laid their clothes and palm branches in the road so he could ride a donkey on them. What baffled me was that the people of Jerusalem that day did all of that not knowing who Jesus really was. Not knowing that he was going to be the savior of all mankind. So what were they thinking that day? Today we call him Lord because we know him as the son of God, the risen savior. But why did everyone that day cry out Hosanna to the son of David? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now at this time in history, the children of Israel have been under the brutal, oppressive rule of the Romans for about 60 years up to this point. It's no secret that the Hebrew people hated the Romans with a very special passion. And they viewed the Romans as pagan, foreign invaders into their land. The Romans would do stuff like bust into the Hebrews' temple and uh, uh, erect the statue of Apollo and sacrifice a pig on the altar of the temple. And you know Hebrews and Jews don't, you know, do pigs, you know. Y'all know that, right? Well, throughout the history of Israel, 
Most of the time when the children of Israel were being oppressed by a foreign people, God would raise up a deliverer, a Messiah, to save them from their oppressors. There was Moses who led them out of Egypt 1,300 years earlier. Then there was Joshua who led them into the land of Canaan. There was Othniel who defeated Cushan Rishathaim. Then there was Ehud that defeated Eglon, the king of Moab, when Moab tried to invade Israel. Then there was Shamgar that defeated the Philistines the first time when the Philistines tried to invade Israel. Then there was Deborah and Barak who defeated Jabin. He was the king of the Canaanites when the Canaanites tried to come get some. Then Gideon defeated the Midianites and the Amalekites. Then Jephthah defeated the Ammonites. And then Samson fought and defeated the Philistines a second time when they tried to come back again. And then King David finally defeated the Philistines once and for all. There was a pattern here. Somebody tries to run up, and then somebody from Israel steps back and lets them know that God is not to be messed with. Amen. But the history of Israel was full of men that rose up to defeat Israel's enemy. There was no reason to believe that there was not going to be some kind of deliverer that would rise up and defeat this latest group of heathens that had come in and invaded their land, the Romans. It was what had happened before. It's what the children of Israel were used to. It was what God had done in the past, and it was what the children of Israel wanted, expected, and had been praying for. Well, not included in the Bible, but written in the text of military history, it speaks of the year 166 B.C. when the children of Israel were once again invaded by the Seleucid Empire. Soon a Hebrew named Mattathias and his sons Judas, who was later called Judas the Maccabee or the Hammer, and his four brothers waged a brilliantly executed campaign, a war in which Judea fought for and won independence from the Seleucid Empire in the year 142 B.C. And that's not even in the Bible. They study that in West Point. But after that, there was peace in the land of Israel for 80 years before the Romans came and took over the region. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Romans had been in power for close to 60 or so years. But the people of Judea did not forget. Fighting for freedom was a part of their heritage, and they prayed and longed for another leader to rise up so they could defeat this latest group of pagans. So as we look at our text, most of us in modern times fail to notice the significance of the moment that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. You see, he arrived at the height of the Passover celebration. Everybody say Passover. 
You see, the Passover was one of the most important times of celebration in Jewish culture. It celebrated the freedom of the Hebrews' ancestors from bondage after the death angel killed all of the firstborn of Egypt. The Passover celebration was the reminder of the great miracles that God did against a more powerful army and nation of the Egyptians to free his people. During that time, lambs were roasted and eaten as a sign of the liberation of the people. Bitter herbs were sprinkled on the lamb as a reminder of the bitterness of the slavery that they escaped. I need for us in our modern minds to put our times there. The whole celebration, the whole time of Passover was a celebration of freedom. Passover celebrated the intervention of God into the social and political situation of those ancient Israelites. So the Passover pilgrims celebrate this ancient political slash military, because it was a military action that God executed against the Egyptians, of God as the fundamental core of their belief and of their faith, which means for them, God is for us. No matter what happens, God is for us. No matter who attacks us, God is for us. And God will save us by one way or another. God will save us, even if he has to wipe all of y'all out to do it. God is going to save his children. And the Hebrews were willing to live that out literally. Because in the past, there had always been someone who would rise up, and they wouldn't rise up and pray for the Philistines. Samson didn't pray for the Philistines, amen. He dealt with them. So it was a time of tension and high alert for Roman soldiers, naturally. You would know that they would have to, in our, in our, in our modern minds, we don't think about that, that the Roman army in Judea was probably very nervous, <laughs> Around this time, they would watch very closely every move that was taking place and the approaches to the city. They knew from many years experience that the city swelled with the influx of pilgrims each year at the time of Passover. None of the soldiers went home to their barracks. Everybody pulled double duty in the Roman fortress those days as the pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem. In our modern minds, we fail to notice the deep political implications of the shouts of the crowd, of the waving of the palm branches. You see, in this day, oh, we're like, hallelujah, glory to God, and waving the palm branches. But when the Romans and the ancient Hebrews saw that, they was like, yeah, hallelujah. We about to take this thing back. <clears throat> so if you think about those shouts of the crowd, Hosanna, the waving of the branches, the laying of the cloaks on the ground, the choice of the animal in which Jesus rides, all of these had very clear implications for the ancient Hebrews and for the Roman soldiers and their commanders. The implication of all of that celebrating was that God, through his chosen instrument, through his prophet, 
through his king was going to rise up and free his people. A far different implication from what we do is we wave palm branches today. The Romans knew of the potential for dispute and conflict that simmered underneath the crowds. They knew that the people would be attuned to the charged militant implications of this celebration. It was a very, very tense time. The people of Israel had no problem letting the Romans know how much they hated them. If there was ever a time for insurgency and uprising, Passover was that time. In fact, there were more than 50 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak to the coming of the Messiah and Jesus matched the description exactly. I need for us to put ourselves there so we can see in their mind what Jesus represented. In Isaiah 35 and 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. Now, all we have to do is look at the miracles that Jesus performed. Wherever Jesus went, the eyes of the blind were opened, just like in the prophecy. The lame were made to walk, just like in the prophecy. The ears of the deaf were unstopped, just like in Isaiah and the mute were made to speak. On two separate occasions, Thousands who were fed from him, breaking up a little bit of food and multiplying it and feeding thousands. Two different times. Forces of nature, the wind, the storm, the waves, and the sea obeyed his commands. The dead were raised. Even by his own words, when he would preach, he would be preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. We hear one thing, but when the ancient Hebrews heard the kingdom of God, they heard something different. It was a kingdom for the poor and the hungry. He was always talking about how the kingdom was at hand and the kingdom is even in our midst. He preached the kingdom of God's justice. A kingdom where those on the edge or who were cast out of society would be welcomed into that kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Listen to his words in a different ear right now because we know all of these scriptures. Everything seemed to line up. Everything seemed to make sense. In their minds, Jesus had to be the one who was going to defeat the Romans. Every Hebrew, pro every Hebrew knew the prophecy from 500 years before the day Jesus even rolled that donkey into Jerusalem. In Zechariah 9 and 9, it read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout! O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king 
is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a coat, the foal of a donkey. It goes on to say that I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. They all knew the words of Isaiah 9 and 6 that said, For uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Even even gets more detail. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The Lord of hosts shall perform this. There is almost no way that you could have been a Hebrew alive during this time and heard these passages and not believe that Jesus was the one who these scriptures referred to. And it was. He was. So by the time that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, the energy and the expectancy of the people were at a fever pitch. All of the indicators were there that he was going to set everything right in their world and deal with these Romans, this latest group of foreign oppressors, just like all of the other guys did. Immediately after the triumphal entry, immediately after all of the palm branches and all of the whole and all of the hosannas, Matthew 21 and 12 says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Incidentally, the money changers and the pigeon sellers kept the money that they extorted from the people under their tables and under their seats. So when Jesus was turning over tables and kicking over seats, he was exposing their extortion. Amen. Maybe one day in another sermon, I will explain in detail the racket that they had going on, but it was a very extensive hustle that they had going on with the priests. Anyway. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it into a den of robbers. He was directly attacking the power structure that the Pharisees had inside of the temple. And they would have tried to kill him right then and there, but Jesus had the support of the crowd. Just a few seconds later, they were just screaming, Hosanna, in the highest. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests were afraid to try to take him out at that point. 
But Jesus was asserting that this was the house of God, his own house, if you will. And the things that went on in the temple would be done to please God and God alone. Some would say that he was cleaning house. He even healed the sick and the lame that were in and around the temple. Excitement around him continued to build higher and higher and higher. He is the one. I know it. They can feel it in their hearts. Jesus is the one. Then leaving Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree. Remember, there's people all around him at this time. He saw a fig tree and he cursed it. In Matthew 21 and 19, it says, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. You see, the fig tree represented Israel and was barren, and the king was not happy with the fruit his kingdom was producing. The king had spoken. He was then challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes in a number of ways, and he completely shut them down. He embarrassed them. He called them out. And he showed them for who they really were. He calls them blind. He calls them fools and hypocrites. He says to them in Matthew 23 and 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Read the word. The meanest things ever Jesus ever said to other human beings were to the leaders of the Hebrew society. He goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. He blew them up. He blew them out. He said that in front of all of their people, that they look good on the outside, but on the inside, they were ugly. They were filthy. The Pharisees were furious. He then spoke about the sign of the times. He spoke about the tribulation and the coming of the Son of Man, about the wedding feast and the ten virgins. All parables that let the children of Israel know that the time of the Lord was at hand and they could not wait to see it happen. How many of us are waiting for God to pay back all of those who have done us wrong? How many of us? The word says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we are just waiting with bated breath for God to take vengeance. We're like, God, when are you going to get them? You see what they did. When are you going to get them back? And more than anything else, we hope that we are there to see God take vengeance. You see, salvation as we know it was nowhere in the thoughts of the ancient Hebrews. We know God's salvation to save my soul from my sins and all. The Hebrews were thinking something completely different but in my mind's eye I can see it 
Jesus gets up and he tells them that they are to love their neighbor as they love themselves. And they were like, all right, that's not too hardcore. You know, all right, Jesus, you know, all right, yeah, we can, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. And then through the parable of the Good Samaritan, he tells them who their neighbors are. They're like, hmm, Samaritans? Because Hebrews and Samaritans really getting, didn't get along. You mean Samaritans are my neighbor? He's like, yeah, Samaritans as well. They're like, oh, okay, that sounds a little strange. You know, when are you going to get to the Romans? He's like, don't worry, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's telling them the kingdom. And then he went as far as to tell them that to render under Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he tells them that they are to love their enemies. Someone out of the crowd says, even the Romans? He says, especially the Romans. If the Roman, he says, if a Roman makes you carry his pack for one mile, go further and carry it for two miles. In fact, he said, pray for those who persecute you. The whole crowd goes quiet. I bet you could have heard a cotton ball drop on the floor. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their jealousy, always in the crowd, were spreading, already spreading lies about Jesus and slowly they saw public opinion begin to turn. They were like, did he just say love? Did he just say love your enemy? Hmm, okay, let me think about that. They were all, the Pharisees were already mad at Jesus and looking for a way to get rid of him because he was threatening the status quo. He was threatening to overturn the natural order of things. But because he had the love and the support of the people, they could not try to harm him openly. But now they saw their chance. The man that the people thought was going to rise up and lead the nation to victory over the Romans was in fact telling them to actually love the Romans and pray for their enemy and turn the other cheek. This didn't seem right. Somebody was like, oh, he tripping. Love your enemy? Whatever, buddy. So by the time that we get to Matthew 27 and 20, after his arrest, public opinion in Jerusalem had completely turned on Jesus. Had didn't a 180 degree turn. In their eyes, he was no longer the promised one, but another charlatan that had come to deceive them. He was not the Messiah, the physical ruler that they thought he would be. During this time now, the Romans would release a prisoner to show of good faith. Now, y'all don't ride. We're going to let one of your guys go. Or y'all be keep it cool because, you know, we're good guys. So they would release a prisoner in good faith. So by the time we reach the second part of our text in Mark 5 and 15 and 11, when they were offered Barnabas, who was a known criminal, a known revolutionary. He was a known zealot. He was a known hater of the Romans. When they came time to release either Barabbas or Jesus, 
They said release Barabbas because Barabbas is our guy. Barabbas is about to help us deal with these Romans. Oh, Jesus, I don't know what he, this love your neighbor business is, love your, that's out. Give us Barabbas. And they called for Jesus' blood. That same crowd, that same crowd that sang Hosanna, Hosanna to Jesus as he rode through the city on the colt that saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord that saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That same crowd that was laying down palm branches and their clothes in the robe so that Jesus didn't touch the ground. That same crowd that screamed Hosanna is now screaming, crucify him. Crucify him. They love you today and they hate you tomorrow. That's cancel culture on a whole new level right there. Crucify him. Hosanna today. Crucify him tomorrow. They were so caught up in their own desires, their own expectations. They were so caught up in what they wanted that when they found out that Jesus was not who they thought that he was, not their physical liberator, not their earthly king, they screamed for his crucifixion. They wanted one that would free them from the Romans. But Jesus came to free them from themselves. Mm. He came so that they and us could have life and life everlasting. They yelled Hosanna not because they knew that Jesus was the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but because they thought he was going to give them what they wanted. There are many today that are worshiping the Lord not because they want to be closer to him, but because they think that he's going to give them what they want. You see, because we today know exactly who he really is, we have no excuse. We understand those in the crowd that day that scream Hosanna on Sunday and then scream crucify him on Friday because they did not really know who Jesus was, but we know who Jesus really was. We know why he came. We know what he came to do. And even though the crowd had it wrong that day and tried to diminish who Jesus really was, he was more than worthy of the reception that he got that day. He was more than worthy of the palm branches and the clothes being thrown out. He was more than worthy. He was more than an earthly king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He already knew that he had legions of angels at his command. He knew that he could call down the wrath of heaven that nothing would have survived. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He knew that if the crowd was to be quiet, then all of nature would give him praise. He even said it, you need to quiet your supporters down. And he said, if they be quiet, 
then the rocks and the stones will cry out. Jesus knew who he was. He knew. Let everyone that know who Jesus really is stand up and give him praise right now. Hallelujah. Oh, give him praise. Say, Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah. I used to wonder, how could they do that? How could they do that to someone who showed nothing but love to them? But I was told as a young Christian that we crucify our Lord and Savior all over again when we sin and get wrapped up into ourselves. And if that's the case, then we who know exactly who Jesus is cry Hosanna every time we worship him on Sunday and we scream crucify him every time we step outside of his will for our lives. I'm not talking about that crowd. I'm talking about this crowd. Every time we get wrapped up in self and ignore each other's pain and ignore each other's cries, we scream crucify him. We may be here today and say to ourselves that we would have never done that to our Lord and Savior, but how many times do we get angry at God because he doesn't do what we expect him to do the way we expect him to do it? In one way or another, beloved, we all take our place in that crowd, and we all scream, crucify him, and nail Jesus on that cross because it was for all of our sins that he gave his life. Because of our sin and failure, Jesus took what we deserved and he gave us what he deserved. I said, Jesus took what we deserve and he gave us what he deserves. He became like us so that we could become like him. Hallelujah. Now, our task now, more than ever before, is to pray like Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. Not what I want, Lord, but what you want. Not what we think things should be about people and situations, but what he thinks about situations and people. As children of God, this is what we are to do. This is how we get closer to him. Give him praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He has purpose in mind for you. Don't diminish him and put him in a box by spending all your time telling him what you want. He has a higher call for you. He has meaning in mind for you. Someone in here needs to know to give your life, give your dreams, Give your desires, give your expectations to him, and he'll give them back to you in a way that you could not ever have imagined. Lay them down to be crucified, and I promise you that which is crucified with Christ will rise again. Hallelujah. He loves us so much. He came to give his life for us. He came all the way from heaven down to unite us with our creator, our heavenly father. That's more than any earthly king could ever do. 
I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. Hallelujah. I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why Jesus cared. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Oh, but I'm glad. Oh, but I'm glad. Oh, but I'm glad. So glad he did. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Worship him now. Just worship him with me. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you that I love you more. 